Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. As a Christian, are you finding yourself at odds with your culture when it comes to issues regarding biblical sexuality and abortion? Well, I've got some good news for you. We've been here before. Christianity was birthed in the first century Roman Empire. And today we're going to talk about sex and abortion in the Roman Empire and how did the Christians respond. my goodness, we have so much great stuff to talk about today. This is an issue that I've been studying pretty intensely for about a year, so I'm excited to kind of bring you some of the places I've landed on it, and I'm also going to be giving you some great resources as we go along so that you can do your own research as well. But if you're anything like me, you're finding yourself in a culture in which you're swimming against the tide of popular thought when it comes to issues like uh, sex and abortion. In fact, we're finding ourselves in a culture that's actually hostile to our beliefs on those issues. We're, we're living in a culture that would consider us to be bigoted or hateful or fearful because we hold to biblical teachings on these issues. And so the temptation can be to become fearful or to cower or to shrink back. And to wonder, oh my goodness, you know, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to interact with our culture on these things? And in the tendency is to sort of think that this has never happened before and we've got to figure it out. But in reality, the church has been here before. The earliest Christians were in a similar spot as we're in now, only the difference is, is that their culture was much worse. I think there's the tendency sometimes to think, oh man, things are getting so bad. This is just the worst it's ever been in history. Well, actually, no, their culture was way worse and they were facing even deeper issues of social tension and exclusion for the beliefs that they held. Because in our culture, it's understood and it's expected for people to have different political views and religious views. But in the first century Roman Empire, that was sort of all tied together. And a great resource to get on this is Larry Hurtado's book, Destroyer of the Gods. You'll learn a lot about the, the daily way of life in the Roman Empire and how that affected Christians. So we're going to look at some examples of uh, writings from the early church about how Christians interacted with some of these topics. But the first one that we're going to talk about is really, really early. I mean, this is before there was widespread persecution. This is actually even before Jesus died and was resurrected. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about John the Baptist. 
Both Matthew and Mark record this story. So the gist of it is basically this. Herod throws himself a big birthday party, and he invites a bunch of men who were prominent in Galilee. So imagine the scene. You've got a big man party and a bunch of booze. It's probably not good is going to come out of that. So in comes his stepdaughter, and she dances for all the men. Now you can imagine what kind of a dance this must have been, because it says that he was so pleased with it, and the men were all so pleased that he offered her whatever she wanted, up to half his kingdom. So she goes and she asks her mom. She says, what should we ask for? And her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So she does, and then Herod has to fulfill his vow to her, and then he goes and has John the Baptist executed and has his head delivered to her on a platter. So what is going on in this story? Why did Herod's wife want John the Baptist dead? Why had Herod thrown him in prison in the first place? Well, it wasn't for simply proclaiming the way of the Messiah or for some sort of general issue regarding his faith. And remember, this was, again, before Jesus was killed and resurrected, before any kind of major persecution had broken out against Christians. That hadn't even started yet. But he was in prison for challenging the sexual ethic of Herod. He called him out. He said, it's not lawful for you to have her. He was telling Herod that it wasn't lawful for him to marry his wife Herodias because she was his brother's wife. Now, ancient Jewish historian Josephus can tell us a little bit more about what was going on here. In his Antiquities of the Jews, he says this, Herodias took upon her to confound the laws of our country and divorced herself from her husband while he was alive and was married to Herod Antipas. So she basically divorced her husband and married his brother, and John the Baptist was imprisoned and killed because he called them out on this issue. He was killed because of his public stance on issues related to sex and marriage. So I think about Christians today, the biblical views of marriage and gender and sex, they're running in direct contradiction with our culture. And especially with recent events like the writing of the Nashville Statement, we can't hide behind some kind of vague deal anymore. Uh, Christians have never been able to hide their beliefs on these issues, and it's no different now. So I hope today that this podcast will encourage you, if you're a Christian who's confused about how to live out your beliefs in a world that considers so many of those beliefs to be hateful or bigoted or abusive or fearful, I pray that you will be encouraged to follow Jesus with kindness and truth and love and with courage. So John the Baptist was sort of the forerunner of what we're going to be talking about today, which is how the earliest Christians interacted with their culture on issues of sex, marriage, and abortion. And these are issues that some Christians think it's okay to kind of keep quiet on, uh, that we don't really have to talk about these things. And yes, we don't have to only talk about those things, but we mustn't avoid teaching the fullness of God's truth on absolutely everything, because the gospel doesn't make exceptions for certain things. The gospel is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. And if we think that we can be bullied or shamed into silence about something that God calls a sin, then I shudder to think about what Jesus said in Luke 9, 26. He said, 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And it's interesting the way Jesus words this because it's not just being ashamed of him, but it's also being ashamed of his words, so of his teachings. And so, you know, some people will say in reference to certain issues regarding biblical sexuality, well, Jesus never spoke specifically about that one. And we hear this a lot with the transgender and homosexuality argument that Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. He actually did mention it uh, when he mentioned sexual immorality in Matthew 15, and also when he defined marriage in Matthew 19. So in the context of first century Judaism, any sexual act outside of marriage was considered not lawful. And the word that Jesus used for sexual immorality covered all unlawful sexual acts, including sex before marriage, adultery, sex with animals, sex with members of the same sex, anything outside of a marriage between a man and a woman was condemned by that culture and condemned by Jesus himself. So to kind of give us an example of this, recently the satire site Babylon Bee published an article with the title, But Jesus Never Said a Thing About Felony Home Invasion. And the point is that, you know, he may not have mentioned felony home invasion, but that doesn't make it okay because Jesus never mentioned it because he actually mentioned stealing. And felony home invasion falls under the umbrella of stealing. So homosexuality would fall under the umbrella of sexual immorality. And someone might say, well, Jesus never said anything about abortion. Again, he didn't have to. He condemned murder and abortion fell under the umbrella of murder. Early Christians unanimously stood against abortion. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, they had abortion in the Roman Empire? They did. And we are going to talk about some of the early writings that talk about abortion in the early Roman Empire. But first, let's talk about sex. It's well documented that sex in the Roman Empire was a free-for-all. Unless you were a woman, because if you were a woman, you were expected to be faithful to your husband. But in that culture, husbands were not expected to be faithful to their wives. They could have mistresses, they could do all sorts of stuff, and it wasn't considered taboo. It, nobody would blink an eye at it. So it's well documented that in the first century Roman Empire, it was perfectly acceptable for men to have sex with other men, as long as the active partner was of a higher social standing. So a man could have sex with a conquered enemy or a slave, but it would have been taboo for a man to have sex with another man of equal status. Now, there are certainly exceptions to this, but this is a mentality that goes way back deep into history, back to ancient Assyrian cultures even, and ancient uh, Egyptian cultures, that the sex between a man and another man was totally fine as long as you were the active partner and the person that you were having sex with was of a lower social class. And uh, so a great resource on this is Robert Gagnon's The Bible in Homosexual Practice, Text and Hermeneutics. He will give you examples from ancient Assyrian law codes in ancient Egyptian culture where this was a prevalent mindset. It's a great book to get. It's a scholarly book, but I actually found it to be very accessible and easy to read. And interestingly, there are some really highly respected scholars on this subject that endorse the book 
even though they don't agree with his conclusion. So Gagnon's a conservative. He's going he's gonna to say that homosexuality is unbiblical and it's wrong. But he's got these prominent scholars in the same field saying, you know, we don't agree that homosexuality is wrong, but we do agree with Gagnon's conclusions about what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. So they would just kind of throw the Bible out and say, therefore, we don't accept the Bible. But they do endorse his book as good scholarship. So in the Roman Empire, it was perfectly acceptable for a man to have sex with a man of lower status. And this wasn't necessarily considered homosexuality in the way that we would define homosexuality today in our culture. So the primary expression of homosexuality in antiquity was of a more abusive nature. There was the master-slave type uh, homosexual relationship, and then there was a uh, pederasty, which was when an older man would have sex with younger boys. This was very, very common uh, in the Roman Empire. And just as a side note, there are many people who would say that because the primary expression of homosexuality in antiquity was abusive, that they didn't have any idea of what a loving and monogamous same-sex relationship was, which is more how we would define homosexuality today. And therefore, the loving and monogamous type is okay with God, it's okay biblically. And I just have a couple of things to say about that. Number one, the claim that they had no idea what a loving, monogamous, same-sex relationship was is actually demonstrably false. There are many examples throughout history, even up into the church father's writing of uh, loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships and even same-sex marriage. Now, again, it wasn't common. It wasn't the primary expression, but it definitely was a known concept. But even if it wasn't, most scholars, and I'm talking atheist scholars, gay scholars, most scholars that specialize in sexuality in antiquity and the New Testament will tell you that even if they had no idea about a loving same-sex monogamous relationship, Paul still would have condemned what we define as homosexuality. So there's really just one group that's trying to change that, and that's the revisionists, the Christian revisionists that have sort of, sort of started popping up since about the 50s to kind of try to change the biblical narrative, um, whereas even gay scholars themselves will tell you the Bible condemns homosexuality. So to give you a picture of what sex in the Roman Empire looked like, in his book, People to be Loved, Preston Sprinkle notes this. He says, what we call pornography the Romans simply called life. The junk you can find on HBO at 2 a.m. was plastered on the bathhouse walls and inside homes and decoration, as decorations. For instance, it wasn't uncommon to have pictures of men having sex with boys painted on water pitchers served at the dinner table. So imagine the scene. You're at the dinner table with your family. You pull out your water pitcher and etched into it is an image of a man having sex with a boy or an orgy or something like this was very, very common. So you can imagine how far the mindset of the culture had gone for that to just be so normal that it's etched onto your water pitchers at the dinner table. So in contradiction to culture... Christianity prohibited all of this behavior and only allowed sex between a married man and a woman. And interestingly, in Christianity, the men were also expected to be sexually pure, not just the women. 
So Christianity actually elevated the status of women because they held men to the same standard that the greater culture held women to, which is unheard of. So the early Christians were very countercultural when it came to sex. They did not think it was fine to just be silent about this, obviously from the example we even saw with John the Baptist, which predated all of these other Christians who were facing this in their culture. So let's talk about abortion. Rodney Stark, who's a respected, very respected sociologist of religion, and here's what he wrote about abortion in the early Christian life. He said, once married, pagan girls had a substantially lower life expectancy, much the difference being due to the great prevalence of abortion, which involved barbaric methods in an age without soap, let alone antibiotics. So he's noting that abortion was prevalent in that early, early culture, and it actually made the life expectancy of Christian women to be higher because they weren't having abortions. And in that culture, it was the men who made the decisions about the abortions. If, it was, uh, if the pregnancy would end in abortion, it was the man who would make that call. So men would command their wives or their mistresses or their daughters to have abortions. And Rodney Stark also notes that even Plato and Aristotle both advocated mandatory abortions whether that was just to limit family size or for whatever other reason. So going way back into history again, abortion was very common and very accepted. So this isn't like a new thing that culture's accepting abortion. We've always faced this as Christians. Church historian Bruce Shelley notes in his book, Church History, that there were situations in which a Christian woman was married to a pagan man who would demand that she have an abortion. Now imagine you're a Christian woman in this culture, you've come out of a pagan life, you've found the love of Jesus, you're living your life as a Christian, and your husband demands that you have an abortion. Well, Bruce Shelley notes that usually the Christian women refused. They, they said, we're not going to do that. So you can imagine the tension that would create in the home for the woman to make a stand for the biblical position on abortion. It, it was probably extremely difficult and most likely resulted in abuse, I'm sure, in, in lots of different situations. So being a Christian, specifically being a Christian woman in certain situations, put people in very precarious spots. So let's go through some documentation in the Roman Empire and early Christianity about abortion. So there's the Didache, which is a first century manual of church teachings. And it says this, thou shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. Now, what is that talking about, nor kill them when born? Well, there was a Roman custom called child exposure. And if the child was unwanted and wasn't aborted, they would just leave it out to die. Now, this was common. This was incredibly common that if you didn't abort your child, but you didn't want it for whatever reason, you would just leave it out to die. Now that sounds horrific to us, right? But this was accepted by virtually everybody in culture. These family men would go put their babies on a garbage dump and come home and have dinner with their families. I mean, this was common. So why would they do this? Well, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods that I mentioned earlier, Larry Hurtado noted that, that one of the reasons people would leave their infants to die rather than abort 
was so that they could select the sex. Remember, this was a time before sonograms. You couldn't really find out the sex of your child before it was born. So often, if the baby was a girl, because that was less desirable than having a boy baby, they would leave her out to die. Church historian Philip Schaff writes this about the Christian reaction to child exposure in the Roman Empire. He says, It resisted with all energy the exposition of children who were then generally devoured by dogs and wild beasts, or if found, trained up for slavery or doomed to a life of infamy. In regard to the Roman practice of child exposure, several Christian apologists early on spoke out against it. So you have the author to the Epistle of Diognetius, Justin Martyr, uh, Tertullian, Arnobius, and others. They weren't the only ones, but they all spoke out uh, with indignation, really, against this practice. Philip Schaff notes that no pagan or heathen philosopher had even come close to making a statement like that. So let's again compare the culture. It was the Christian apologists that were speaking out against this, saying this is wrong. And they were in absolute contradiction to their culture. There was no secular or pagan philosopher that was speaking out against this. It was totally accepted in culture. And again, this isn't just like some psychopath out in the wilderness telling everybody to leave their children out to die, or just the deviance of society that were promoting these ideas. This was the average Joe in Roman society that thought it was perfectly fine to leave an unwanted baby out to die or to abort. So Philip Schaff notes that early Christians unanimously condemned abortion. And you can get his amazing eight-volume History of the Christian Church. And I think it's actually pretty cheap on Kindle, so check that out. Philip Schaff, History of the Christian Church, eight volumes. So let's look at some early Christian writings about abortion. The Epistle of Barnabas says this, "'Thou shalt not slay the child by procuring abortion, nor again shalt thou destroy it after it is born.'" Uh, Church father Athenagoras said, And when we say that those women who use drugs to bring on abortion commit murder and will have to give account to God for the abortion, on what principle should we commit murder? For it does not belong to the same person to regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being, and therefore an object of God's care. And when it has passed into life, to kill it, and not to expose an infant because those who expose them are chargeable with child murder. And on the other hand, when it has been reared to destroy it. So if you will go on uh, Amazon and get the complete anti-Nicene and Nicene and post-Nicene Church Fathers collection, it is an amazing resource. You really, really need to get this resource. It's got something like a thousand books and 16 million words, but it's our Church Fathers and, and what they wrote. And I think that it's like $2 on Kindle. So really pick that up. But if you, if you kind of go through and you start reading what some of these fathers said about abortion, you're going to learn about the different kind of drugs that were used for abortion back then. In fact, one early church historian noted that they used plants to induce abortion. So get that resource and you can learn a lot more. But from there, we learn from Tertullian uh, that he said this, the embryo therefore becomes a human being in the womb from the moment that its form is completed. The law of Moses indeed punishes with due penalties the man who shall cause abortion, inasmuch as there exists already the rudiment of a human being 
which has imputed to it even now the condition of life and death. Uh, Later on, St. Jerome said, Some, when they find themselves with child through their sin, use drugs to procure abortion, and when, as often happens, they die with their offspring, they enter the lower world laden with the guilt not only of adultery against Christ, but also of suicide and child murder. The epistle of Dionysus says, Thou shalt not slay thy child by causing abortion, nor kill that which is begotten. And again, you can get all of that from the complete Antonicene and Nicene and post-Nicene Church Fathers collection on uh, Kindle. So I want to close out with some thoughts. First, if you are a woman who has had an abortion, there is forgiveness for you. There is the fullness of life in Jesus Christ for you. I don't mean that for any of these words to heap condemnation on your head. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there is healing and hope for you in Jesus. So I want to be really clear to say that first. I also want to read from a book called Water from a Deep Well by Gerald Sitzer. He talks about the Christian worldview and how it was interacting with culture back in those early days. He says this, The Christian worldview condemned infanticide, abortion, and incest, and it disapproved of marital infidelity, divorce, and polygamy. Instead, the Christian community valued both chastity and marriage, which applied equally to men and women. And he goes on to talk about how the Christian practice of their beliefs contradicted their culture. And he says this, Christians practiced a way of life that passed implicit judgment on Roman society. Forced to choose between Jesus and Caesar, Christians for the most part chose Jesus, confessing him as Lord. In nearly every one of the early accounts of martyrdom, this conflict between Christianity and the state surfaces as a major issue. Christian belief had public consequences. Christian practice challenged Rome's quest for dominance. Christianity made claims that threatened the empire. Such conviction was bound to upset the state. Does this sound familiar to you? It sounds familiar to me that we're making claims that upset people. As long as we're not saying it in an offensive way or in a hateful, unloving way, we have to speak truth because truth will set people free. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. We can't hide under a rock because we're afraid of offending people because the people that are being prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive the message, it will be life to them. So the early Christians weren't simply persecuted because they claimed to worship some Jewish rabbi. It was the life they lived as a result of their devotion to Jesus that continually got them into trouble. So compare that with what we face now. We might get unfriended on Facebook. We might get some snarky comments on Twitter. And even on a deeper level, people are facing uh, being fired from their jobs or being sued. I mean, we're seeing this all over. That's true. But these are small prices to pay compared to what our early brothers and sisters were facing, where they were giving their very lives for their beliefs on these things. And so I hope this encourages you to remember a couple of things. Number one, you are not alone. And even if you were, even if you were the last person on earth that held to the biblical view of sex and abortion or anything else, 
You're still not alone. Oz Guinness wrote in his book, The Call, most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. This observation underscores another vital feature of the truth of calling. A life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before an audience that trumps all others, the audience of one. So you're not alone because you will always have the audience that matters most, the audience of one, which is Jesus. The other thing that we can remember is that we've been here before. This isn't the first time in history we're facing this. There's nothing new that Christians are facing that we haven't faced before. There are voices that would convince you, that would try to convince you that you all better get on the train because we are leaving without you. I mean, culture is changing and you're going to be on the wrong side of history and you're going to look back and be ashamed for your views, but people learn church history and you will see that that is not the case. We have been here before and it was a lot worse before. Every time we faced it, there were some voices calling us to change our beliefs there were some voices calling for us to be utterly eradicated, but guess what happens every single time? The gospel stands. The church survives. The banner of God's truth is waved high in a dark, confused, and dying world. The message of Jesus continues to spread throughout the world. Jesus said, upon this rock, I have built my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And guess what, my friends? They never have. They never have. I'm going to close with this quote by G.K. Chesterton from his book, Orthodoxy, another great book you got to go get. He says this, it's easy to be a madman. It's easy to be a heretic. It's always easy to let the age have its head. The difficult thing is to keep one's own. It is always easy to be a modernist. It's easy to be a snob, to have fallen into any of those open traps of error and exaggeration which fashion after fashion and sect after sect set along the historic path of Christendom. That would indeed have been simple. It is always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angels at which one falls, only one at which one stands. To have fallen into any one of the fads from Gnosticism to Christian science would indeed have been obvious and tame, but to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies, thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. And right now, my friends, the truth is reeling but it's still standing. Boy, and if that doesn't make you want to stand up and cheer, I don't know what will. Christians, be kind, be truthful, be courageous. Many, many saints have gone before you speaking light into a dark world. The people who the Holy Spirit is calling will hear it and receive it. So don't stop shining the beautiful light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into a world that so desperately needs the beauty of his truth.
listening to this podcast and would like to sign up to receive my blog posts and podcasts by email, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button. Or you can simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.